Support for WPR comes from Stafford Rosenbaum, a Wisconsin-based law firm celebrating 145 years of commitment to practical legal solutions in areas such as family law and estate planning. StaffordLaw.com. Support for WPR comes from Isthmus Partners, an independent asset management firm offering comprehensive financial planning and tailored investment solutions for clients nationwide. More at IsthmusPartnersLLC.com. Ms. Schwendiger's work lives in at least two worlds, sometimes assertive and rhythmically sharp-edged, but those moments virtually always resolve into a sweetly singing line. The grittier orchestral writing offsets that sweetness without overwhelming it. This is a work that seems likely to blossom with repeated listening. So said New York Times music critic Alan Cozen of Chiaroscuro Azzurro, a work for violin and orchestra by Laura Schwendinger. It's an observation that could apply to many of the composer's works, and we're going to explore a few of them with the composer. I'm Norman Gilliland. This is University of the Air. Laura Schwendinger has written in many genres and has won many distinctions. She was the first composer to win the American Academy in Berlin Prize, and her opera Artemisia is the winner of the 2023 American Academy of Arts and Letters Charles Ives Opera Award, the largest such award for vocal music in the United States. She's also a professor of composition at the UW-Madison, and welcome to University of the Air. Thank you so much, Norman, for having me. I'm looking forward to exploring the uh, many-faceted world of your music. And I think first we should get into some idea as to how you got into this business in the first place. It's one thing to be an instrumentalist, of course. It's another to compose and still another to prosper so mightily as a composer. So take us back to the beginning. How did it all start? <laughs> well, the beginning, I guess, was when I was fairly young. I was making up tunes when I was about six, seven, eight years old, and I started writing little pieces for the youth orchestras that I played in in the Bay Area. And um, when I applied to the San Francisco Conservatory um, as a senior in high school, I applied as a flute major. 
I didn't apply with my compositions, but I sent in some of these youth orchestra pieces that I'd written. And John Adams wrote me a little note saying, I've seen your pieces. Please come to the conservatory and work with me. Wow. I'd like you to study with me. Important composer. (laughs) So I double majored there. But slowly but surely, it was was clear that composition was going to be calling me forward. When you compose... Who are you thinking about? Are you thinking about what you want to express? Are you thinking about the performers? Are you thinking about the audience? It's different for different pieces. Um, one of the pieces that I, I may share with you today, Nightingales, we heard a little bit of it maybe at the at the beginning, um, was, was started because I um, had a student named Eleanor Barsh, who's an alumnus of UW-Madison and is an extraordinarily gifted performer. And I've written other pieces for her, but we talked for a while about maybe doing a concerto at some point. And so um, thus Nightingales was born, and it was born out of wanting to write her a piece that would really show off her virtuosity. Um, And then the marriage with my obsession with birds during COVID really had a huge effect on things. I I stayed sane by looking out my back window and looking at the birds and transcribing bird calls. Oh, that must have been fun. So I kept a little journal of all the different bird calls, and I tried to identify all of them. I couldn't identify all of them. (laughs) But a lot of those birds from my backyard are in this piece. Not the first time by any means that birds have inspired music. I mean, going all the way back to, well, the 17th century and probably before that, if we knew imitation sonatas and imitation of bird calls and then the time you get to the 20th century with Respighi and is it the Pines of Rome? Of course, Certainly we have gramophone recordings of birds worked into the thing, but you must have been aware of all of that when you wrote your birds into your pieces. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And there are some little little um, kind of winks and nods to Messiaen in the piece because he's he's really the, the man who, who made all of this possible in a way. Let's get into some of this music then. We started out with the aptly named Nightingales, uh, the beginning of that. And what sort of work is that? That work is a piece for two violin soloists and orchestra. What do you use for the bird calls then? Oh, well... The violin soloists do all sorts of wonderful effects that that recall these bird calls. But there are also a lot of little nifty gadgets in the percussion section um, that are used, including a nightingale bird call from England, actually from Acme Bird (laughs) Bird Call Company. (laughs) Now, we mentioned uh, in the beginning there your opera, Artemisia. And uh, what's the premise behind that? Well... Um, uh, Artemisia Gentileschi was a famous painter, um, and she was a follower of Caravaggio and used the same techniques that he did, very brightly shown faces with a dark background, so you feel the the weight of the body coming out of the darkness. Um, So her father was a a very famous painter as well, and he raised her to, to learn how to paint, and she became a painter in his studio. And at the tender age of 17, people already knew who she was. She already was known as being kind of this Funterkind. And um, unfortunately, one of the the people um, he hired to teach her about perspective, um, Agostino Tassi, raped her. And it was it was kind of the trial of the century because her father had Tassi put on trial. You could call for that in those days, and he was put on trial. 
And after a very long watched um, trial in which Artemisia's fingers were broken during torture to verify her testimony. Was that a common thing then? Yes, it was. The Inquisition. Oh, of course. They were lovely people. That's what was. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, but, you know, as a painter, having your fingers broken was yeah. no small thing. Sure. But she verified her testimony in such a way that Tassi was found guilty. And he never served. He was able to, like, buy his way out Didn't get serving. any fingers broken. No, and didn't get any fingers broken. But he was found guilty. So her, her honor was restored by this um, in the eyes of her father and, and of the people of that time. And from there, she painted for King Charles in, in England. She painted for dukes and duchesses and, and you know, every every major figure you can think of, she painted for. And... You're turning, then, the story of a painter into an opera. We do. We take tableau vivant of her famous paintings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And these tableau vivants are really almost autobiographical because she painted her face into many of the paintings. And, of course, she paints her own face as Judith. And Tassi's face is Holofernes. She's definitely working through things, isn't she? She's in her working. Paintings. She is, and and she was brave in that way. And um, yeah, she's an incredible figure. Anyway, we surmise we don't know exactly how she died. She might have died in a plague that went went through her area um, um, in those years. But um, she also wrote a letter, and we have all the letters, by the way, that she wrote her patron or patron wrote her. We also have the the transcripts of the trial. They still exist in Italy. That's, that's uh, a wealth of information to work with if you're <laughs> going to write an opera on the subject. Exactly. And my librettist did all this wonderful research. And um, we surmise that she was losing her eyesight because she asks her patron, Don Rufo for monies for a procedure of s- some sort. And during that period of time, cataract surgery was quite common. You know, Bach and Handel are said to have died from complications to that surgery. It was not a good time for certain medical procedures. Uh, well, let's hear some of this before we get a little bit more into the arc of the story and uh, set us up uh, some excerpts or two from, from your opera. Well, the, the, the first one I've prepared for you is um, uh, an aria, and it's about her singing um, through this canvas that is a self-portrait of allegory as art. She sings gold, it needs more gold. And um, it, what, what she is trying to do is brighten up the image because she is, her eyesight starting to fail. Then the second excerpt, which, which follows that, is um, a, an aria that her um, assistant, Tommaso, sings. And he has a, he has a case for Artemisia. He, he, he's in love with her secretly. All, art, all, all operas need that in some way uh, or yes. shape or form. And so he's singing about his, his uh, master, who is having a difficult time with her painting because of this thing the that eyesight. she's experienced. And so what is this uh, first excerpt called? It's, it's an aria. Called, it's called the gold aria. And after that, it's Tommaso's aria.
Must be a wonderful piece for the harpist and uh, some of the others involved too, but how many times does the harpist get to be so effective? Oh, yeah, and in this production, there were two harps. Two harps and a lute. Oh. A large tierbo. Never heard of that combination. Yeah, the, we, 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 we used this um, aria of Barbara Schlossi's, who was a composer during that time. 17th century. Yeah, and it's the opera starts th- with her aria. And then it moves into a chorus that takes the words from her aria, and they go off with it. Que si può fare, which means what can be done, which is the overall effect of the opera, mm. which is you know, if you're losing your eyesight and your pain or what happens next, you know, that kind of thing. Sure. Yeah. So so the next example we're going to hear is um, uh, this is the ring you gave me, which is what Artemisia sings during her torture and some of the words from this particular aria f- come from the, the the transcripts of the trial. Um, Artemisia famously said, what I have said is true, all is true. And um, that is a, a famous quotation from her. And so this is quite an intense excerpt where she's singing in the, in the court. She's quite angry. She's looking directly at Tassi. This is the ring you gave me. This is the promise that you made. And um, but the rings in this case are the are the sibyls, which are the the way that she was tortured. This is the 
Very effective at uh, creating this reverie, dreamlike remembrance effect for Artemisia. Yeah, she's she's remembering these horrible, you know, moments of her life. And at the end, Tommaso says, "Madam, wake up." He's trying to wake her out of this this past moment and reliving it. You know, um, late in her life, she's kind of thinking about this past and the arc of her life. Performances of this opera, when and where have they uh, taken place? Oh, there have been six different productions. Um, This production is the Trinity Wall Street production with Trinity Novus, which is a very fine orchestra in New York. And um, and and Trinity has a lot of money, so the production was really something. We got to work with Lydia um, Yanuskovsvaya, you know, who conducts in Chicago, and Christopher Alden, who is the um, is a, a famous opera director. And all the singers were were metropolitan opera singers. Um, people like Richard Troxell and Augusta Cazzo, an amazing cast. It would take an amazing cast, I think, to really make it. It's best. I mean, it could be a tough opera to sing, right? Oh yeah, it's it's a difficult opera. And you know, the the opera matches, I think, in tone, the the bravery and the difficulty and the beauty, in different ways of the painting. So I tried to match that complexity because her work is really, it's very very. Um, interesting and complex, and there are many layers. We're going to look, speaking of many layers and complexity, <laughs> at uh, further at the music and other contexts of composer Laura Schwendinger when we return in a moment. This is University of the Air. I'm Norman Gilliland, back with composer Laura Schwendinger, who is also a professor of composition at the UW-Madison and a multiple award-winning composer. And we've been listening to Excerpts from her opera, Artemisia, and uh, we have looked at a lot of varying textures, a lot of complexity, layers of things going on, storyline included. At some point in this opera, Laura, you have to tie it all together for an ending, and how do you do that? Well, Norman, um, she she sings this aria about the moon, um, and she comes out of that reverie realizing that she is losing, she's going to lose her eyesight. And so she makes the decision to stop painting the Diana that she's been painting. And she says, never mind. 
Um, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna paint this naked Diana. She had a thing about painting lots of naked ladies. She didn't want to. After a while, it got to be a little bit old. <laughs> and she says, anyway, the Oculus is coming to take me away soon to an uncertain future. And um, then the chorus comes in and sings this "Que si può fare," this "What can be done." And from that. Then the soprano ends the entire thing with a, a little bit of this Barbara Strozzi aria, and we will hear her accompanied by the lute. I will paint an artemis to my own taste. I have shown what Actaeon sees. What Actaeon sees.
The lute and the soprano, very effective and in a very unusual way, seems to me, of ending an opera, especially one with so much power. Yeah, well, you know, I had this conceit that um, choosing a female painter needed the female composer of the period. So I found this beautiful aria by Barbara Strozzi, Casey Poifari, and um, the beginning of the opera also starts with the same aria, and it overlaps with my overture. So the two live in the same world for a while. It's almost like one of those montages in the films where we get into the scene through the memory, in this case, and through the sensory world of the orchestra. And the ending, the same way, we come out. So we hear the choir overlap the lute. The lute accompanies them for a short spell, and then the Barbara Sosi comes in to end all. And those lovely Italian words in the aria are saying what? Are they related to the plot line of the opera? Absolutely. Um, Casey Poifare translates literally to what can be done. And that is, that's the premise of the opera. What can be done if you're an artist and you lose your eyesight? You know, how do you paint? So, yeah. It's, uh, it's like I say, it's a great way to end an opera on such a quiet note. And then, of course, you have to have that fermata of silence at the end of it before the audience responds. And it's, uh, yeah, very effective that They way. turned off the lights. The director had them turn off the lights completely. And we just sat in darkness. We call that radio. We love that, too. Oh, it's lovely. <laughs> well, speaking of lovely, you know, we have heard quite a bit of uh, variety of style in your work so far, Laura. And... Uh, we had something that was almost, I wouldn't say a mad scene earlier on, but as close perhaps as this opera gets to it. Mm. On the other hand, though, you have to be able to put in a nice kind of love duet. Yeah. <laughs> now, if not in this opera, where might we find one in the works of Laura Schwendinger? Well, our second opera, which was just done this last spring before the last summer in Houston, Texas, by a group called Musiqua. Um, it's called Cabaret of Shadows, and it's about that end of the 18, 19th to 20th century period, the fin du siècle. <laughs> um, and it's in places like the Folle Bergère, where you have women creators. Um, and these women creators are finding their voice in these places where they're allowed to do their work. Because if if they're out there in the bourgeoisie world... Or if they're if they're a working girl, they have to work on the streets. If they're in the the family house, they have to cook and clean and all of that sort of stuff. And these women didn't want to live that life. So and people, this is Paris we're talking about. So anything goes. 
Anything goes. And um, people like Yvette Gilbert, the famous singer that Toulouse-Lautrec painted many, many times, she's actually a character in our opera. And um, uh, Gab Soiree, who was a producer and who whose life partner was Louis Fuller, who was a very famous dancer, was the progenitor of Isadora Duncan. Mm. And she danced with these large sheets of fabric. And she did these swirls. She was almost like a blossoming flower on stage. Sounds like Isadora Duncan. Yeah, exactly. And... Um, um, she was friends with Madame Curie, and they experimented with radium against oh. the fabric, so she <laughs> would glow in the dark oh, on wow. stage. Yeah, she died of cancer. Yeah, I was going to so. say, yeah, as it turns out, not a great idea, but very exciting <laughs> to look at while it lasted. Exactly, and and she was she was an, a sensation in in Paris. People would come from all over to see Louis Fuller dance. She was an American, actually. She was from the Chicago area, so. Um, yeah, so so this duet that we're going to listen to is Gab Soiree, who's the MC for our night in this kind of cabaret of the mind. And mm. she's singing about her lost love, Louis Fuller. And um, um, it, it, she, Louis Fuller died a number of years earlier than kind of the setting of this opera. But um, she still is haunted by the loss of, of her great love. So this is from your opera, Cabaret of Shadows. Love to it.
from Cabaret of Shadows, a love duet, we're calling it, and it's the work of Laura Schwendinger, as is all the music we've been hearing so far this hour. And we're going to be hearing some more, too, right after this here on Wisconsin Public Radio. Meanwhile, back at your second opera that you collaborated on, which uh, we have already sampled some of, that's Cabaret of Shadows, a love duet, there's also a song in there that is known as Yvette's song. And what is Yvette singing about? <laughs> well, Yvette Gilbert was a famous um, chanteuse at, during this period of time, um, one that Toulouse-Lautrec um, had a, well, they say maybe a relationship with, but he painted her many times. And every poster you can think of that was on, you know, walls in the 60s from that period, you know, from the 20s, bringing back that whole, that feeling, have Yvette Gilbert in them. She had, you know, wild red hair and she wore these big hats and she was very thin and very tall. And she had this, you know, statuesque image, but she was also funny. And she was a little bit of a comedian in her, her acts. And Yvette Gilbert is singing this song um, about how the soldiers returning from war and um uh it's it's a very dark song um he comes back from the war and his guts are hanging in his hand and um finally you find out he's bar- he's been buried outside outside of the home and um so it's that kind of twisted french sense of the of the cabaret where they're dark things but it's all accompanied by a french styled musette that i wrote so you hear this very light music in the orchestra around her, and she's singing these dark words. Oh, that, that kind of contrast could be very effective. She sings her romance, she sings in 
that's it. Charming little finale there. It's kind of <laughs> like, oop, we're done. We're almost done, but I'd like to get in some more of your music from other places in particular that we haven't touched on. And uh, you have this uh, dance for harp in Second Sight, and what's the context for that? Well, that that's a harp concerto. It was written for Elizabeth Ramey Johnson, who's the principal of the Atlanta Symphony, and Emory University um, commissioned me just recently to write a concerto for her to celebrate their 100th anniversary of orchestra programs there. And um, so so this dance is one of the tiny movements. There, there are seven small movements that make up this concerto, and this this movement's about a minute and a half, but it's a dance. It's a recognizable dance. And we just have time for one more. Now, we started with nightingales. We heard the first, oh, about a minute of that with the bird sounds and all of that. How does it end? Well, it ends with a lot of crazy bird bombast. <laughs> all right. Yeah, the birds, the, the birds go pretty insane, and it, all heck breaks loose. The brass gets some good chords. And, um, and then out of that comes a, a certain, the ending has this certain stillness. That just leaves this this kind of chord, and it's something I didn't uh, mention before. But uh, Nightingales um, is also an answer, in a way, to the unanswered question by oh, eyes. So because <laughs> boy, I thought about that through COVID so much, and so the 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 piece asks a lot of questions. In the end, we just get a chord, very much like the Ives. Quite a quite an effective piece. The finale of Nightingales.
very atmospheric finale for <laughs> Nightingales. Oh, thank you so much, Norman. It's been a pleasure, Laura Schwendinger. Oh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. It's always a pleasure. And I hope you can join me next time around for University of the Air.